Having studied classical organ at a young age, Bill Myers thought of himself as a music snob. While his friends were into Led Zeppelin and other rock artists, Bill was focusing on the works of Bach. Bill honed his musical skills at the University of DePaul, where he discovered a love for jazz, blues, and R&B, and started making his own music. A demo he created landed in the hands of Gino Vanelli, and the rest is history. Bill joined Gino's touring band, which eventually led him on his path in the music industry, performing, producing, arranging, and writing music for the likes of Madonna, Earth, Wind & Fire, George Duke, Boz Skaggs, Lou Rawls, David Foster, Natalie Cole, Sheila E., and many others. Here to expand on his incredible music career is Bill Myers. Hey, Bill, welcome to Inside Music Cast. Uh, good afternoon, guys. Yeah. Hey, and we want to give a special thanks to uh, Inside Music Cast correspondent Mikhail Engstrom because uh, he connected us with you. So thank you so much, Mikhail. No doubt. Thanks, Mikhail. Bill, you know, you're, you're the perfect guest for our show. It you know, as really we love chatting with the musicians, you know, who, you know, are the great session players who have touched so many amazing records for, you know, the biggest artists on the planet. So, uh, you know, for those who are listening that aren't familiar with you, we want to start off with uh, uncovering a little history about you and, sure. and how you found music and, and made it your career. So, uh, the first off, I just want to say I understand, you know, that your, your dad was a huge influence on you, but I'm curious to know if that influence also included music. And, and if not, think back to your your earliest memory of, of when music really grabbed you? He was. He, he had a wonderful voice. It, I had a, this is kind of funny, I had a Catholic upbringing and my dad uh, changed from being a Lutheran to a Catholic in uh -huh. a very crazy time where, you know, half the mass is Latin and, you know, it's so confusing. And he had the beautiful voice. He had a beautiful tenor voice. And he'd sing the loudest and then he'd go to sleep during the sermons. <laughs> 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 and he used to kind of stick his thumbs in his eyes, you know, like it was half praying. My sister would copy him and uh, my mom would, my mom would poke him and, 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 and he'd say, what'd you do that for? And she'd say, uh, you were sleeping. And he said, no, I was meditating. And, and she said, since when you snore when you meditate. <laughs> and then he'd wake up again and sing the last two hymns beautifully, come back up with the choir. Yeah. You know? So he had really good taste in music. Um, he would listen to Sinatra. He was a huge Nat King Cole fan. Uh -huh. um, he loved um, plays. He, he liked music from the soundtracks uh, of, um, oh, there was a series that, that uh, the famous television uh, host, uh, Ed Sullivan, had where, you know, they took all the Rodgers and Hammerstein plays. Uh -huh. um, he would get soundtracks from movies. I remember uh, Hatari was one of, uh, one okay. of the that he picked up, for example. And I would eat all that stuff up as a kid. And I started playing music as a result of, I was a pretty, uh, I was a bit of a class clown. I was getting in trouble quite a bit and and not focused. And uh, my, my parents were concerned about it. And they, they had me tested and they said, well, the kid's got a real high IQ. I think he's bored. So here, find things that he does well that challenge him. And one of those things was, was starting me on on organ lessons. They okay. bought a, uh, an organ, and no one played it for two years. <laughs> watch Lawrence Welk, okay, and that guy Bob Ralston, right, playing, and and uh, and then I I heard an uh, what was it, an Emerson Lake and Palmer record. Uh -huh. and those guys are cool. Yeah, maybe I'd like to try that. You know, and it just turned out I had a great organ teacher who who uh, pushed me immediately into Bach and serious music. Okay. And that not only helped me in school, but that pushed me uh, in a whole nother zone. And the, the difference between an organist and a, and, and a piano player is that because you're playing on multiple keys, uh -huh. 
and also playing pedals, there's an extra rhythmic quality to it. Right. Um, and you tend to think linear, more linear than a piano player. I often find that that piano players that do arrangements, particularly when they're starting out, they'll they'll just voice a chord that everything their hand can get on. So it tends to be very blocky. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from a very early age, I think I thought more in terms of lines and how they interacted as opposed to big set block chords, you know? Right. And, and my parents were both great. They, they were there for, for me on anything that I tried. So they came to, you know, anything I was doing. And uh, having that kind of support is invaluable. Absolutely. Yeah. What kinds of uh, music, you mentioned Emerson, Lake, and Palmer a second ago, but what kinds of music were you listening to, you know, when you were growing up? And, and what musical influences, you know, came out of your generation that had an effect on how you approached your own musical style? Well, once I got into high school, you know, I was listening to pop radio. But it was a weird thing. When, you, when you've been playing since seven or eight, uh-huh. and it's serious music, okay? You know, Bach is just so well organized. It does a funny thing. It, 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 it gives you a sense, especially as a kid, some, a little bit of musical snobbery. Yeah, yeah. So I was the only kid who didn't, didn't like, I understand them now. I couldn't before. I couldn't get into why everybody liked uh, Led Zeppelin. I, I couldn't figure out. Uh, I've never been uh, a huge uh, Bruce Springsteen fan, although um, his lyrics are superb. You know, yeah. I, I get that. Um, but you get you get in a different zone. Uh, everything else doesn't feel quite the same. And I've had a recent interesting experience with my young kids because my youngest is a, a bit like me. Started piano about a year ago. Uh-huh. And uh, before that, every morning, and this is great for me to stay current with pop, music my kids you know want want that on the radio so right. i'm listening to all the the current stations here kiss fm things like that yeah and for the longest time my oldest likes rap more than my youngest but they both would listen to it and then suddenly my my youngest started playing mozart and some other pieces and turned to me and went dad i hate this stuff man it's it's just uh uh there's like a couple of chords and some guy just talking all the time that's isn't music you know so he turned into a music snob after <laughs> a year of piano lessons <laughs> how dare he <laughs> You good, know, for, good for him. His <laughs> yeah, his perspective changed. You know. Yeah. So, um, so I came around the back door to to, to pop music. I came back to it. Um, by the time I went to college, I had a uh, scholarship in. Um, it was a playing scholarship in Oregon, classical Oregon. I right. got in one, one year and went, "What the hell am I doing this for? I'm going to end up in a church, and what else can I use it for?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I discovered jazz at that time. Yeah, right. I fell absolutely in love with it. Again, I'm going way back now. That's uh, right. You were at this is at DePaul University, right? This is at DePaul University. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I would take. I became a member of the jazz band, but I would uh, I take Oscar Peterson records. Uh-huh. And uh, no, not too many people know this, but old record players would have not just 78 and 33 and a third. Yeah. There was a 16. Right. That was yep. half. Yep. So what I could do is take that and turn a 33 and a third record on a 16. Yeah player and then and then take a cassette machine against one of the speakers and i could figure out oscar's solos in half time yeah because the man <laughs> the man is, for me was the absolute best and you know the speed and the and the taste and the drive and everything he just hooked me yeah so during school i was i was involved in all that and i started making some demos played on some sessions decided i really like blues and r&b had a lot of mentors i i, I grew up in a Lily White suburb, uh, uh, Elmhurst, Illinois. 
Okay. Yeah, which is right next to Oak Brook where they have Butler. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when I went to school, it quickly, the people that helped me the most and most of my mentors became black because this was a whole nother world. And uh, you find out when you're doing, um, you know, classical organ exams, you know, with people, you know, with the sheet music out and <laughs> every single mistake you make, you know, your, 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 uh, your rear end's twitching, you know, like <laughs> scared, you know. Yeah. There's a funny line they say about jazz where if you play it once, it's a mistake. And if you play it twice, it's a part, right. you know. <laughs> That's right. Force it and everybody will believe you meant it. You exactly. Know? As opposed to the pressure, you know, that obviously comes with playing serious music. Uh-huh. And uh, and I, I never lost my love for that. Um, that's why I enjoy composing, you know, ser- in serious music, musical mm-hmm. styles. But uh, yeah. So that moved me over. That moved me over a bit. And then finally, what brought me back to pop music, if it's okay, I'm, I'm getting pretty long-winded here. That's all right. That's all right. I was playing in a club at the Blackstone Hotel that had some pretty risque dancing. Uh, and I, I met the brother of Gino Vanelli. Oh, yeah. And his name is Ross. And he's Ross, been a yeah. lifelong friend, great, great musician, great yeah. friend. I heard him playing guitar in the corner and really liked what he was doing. And he and I started talking. And uh, we showed each other material. Um, I realized uh, initially I was writing jazz heads. And then it was like, wait a minute. If you want to get into pop music, let's, you're going to have to learn how to maybe even begin to write a lyric. Um, you find out that the arranger is going to be working on it. So I started working on arranging skills. And then who hires the arranger? The producer. Well, okay. Better learn some production skills. You know? uh-huh. So I made some demo tapes. And one of them went to Gino. Right. Uh, Ross and I were planning on playing in a band together and Gino was a perfect gateway for me because here I was learning jazz. I had classical skills and here's a pop artist that, that I don't know if you're familiar much with his material, but, but, um, it, it crossed into all kinds of extra zones. Mm-hmm. And yet he, because he was sort of a sex symbol at the time, he yeah. could get away because he had this amazing voice. Yeah. You know? So I, I really got lucky. Because out of nowhere, I'm 16 hours away from graduating in 76, and I'm getting a call from Montreal Stadium during the Olympics. And he's asking me, he liked my demo tape, and he just fired half his band, and he wants to know if I can come out and try it. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. And you can imagine the phone call back to my Italian mom when I said, Mom, I got the job, and it's 800 bucks a week, and it's for two years, and we're going to record in England, and nothing but silence. Wow, <laughs> 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 she just said, like... <laughs> won't quit school and you know i had some smart ass answer i said uh, uh, something like hey I, I, it's just gonna end up in my birdcage you know i don't want i don't care about that you know <laughs> and so it was a great opportunity you know just at the right time because uh, i would have probably stayed in chicago tried to write some songs would have been successful with other people that had gotten me work uh, i had a good friend paul wilson who who owned a very profitable jingle firm that actually tried to get me to come back and offer me a lot of money. I mean, it would have been over a quarter of a million dollars if, if, if I, you know, was heavily involved. And um, it was just too short a music for him, yeah. you know. So I right. was starting sessions doing that. But this got me out of town. This got me on the road yep. with a respected musician, and it was really complex. It was wonderful to do on stage. There were no, there were no uh, bass or guitars, and we played all the parts. It was percussion and, and synthesizers and piano, uh-huh. you know. So that was my first kind of dip back into the pop world. And of course, yeah. our rehearsals were out in LA at um, AM Records. And so here I am meeting this incredible cast of people 
A&M really had great taste. They picked really good acts. Uh, they were a small label, but they uh, and the guys who ran the label were, were were really good people. Yeah, you know, tell us about this connection with Gino because, you know, obviously, um, you know, working with him and Ross, and it must have opened some doors for you and and uh, to have others look at you twice. Yeah, I mean, you and I did gigs with uh, George Duke, Boz, Lou Rawls, even I mean, even Madonna, right? I mean, it's uh, uh, well, that came much later, but yeah. uh, I mean, that came from other things. Really, that was the, my my real major mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, was 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 Maurice White right? Interesting. Yeah. That opened everything that opened everything, but it got me out there. Gino's a terrific guy, but uh, he could take himself a bit seriously. And and uh, Vinnie Caliuta, who who you might know in my past, we've been very good friends, and and, and we're even in a band together for a while. And he used to call him Gino of Nazareth. <laughs> 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 and uh, you know everything was intense and incredibly long sound checks, and everything was you know just knotted up. But, man, the, the amount of detail that they put into their work right. and, and, and the records, I, yeah. I learned so much from them. Yeah, it was, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. Um, and it, it made me realize demos were going to be my salvation. It was, was going to get me in places I, I had never been. Yeah. So, um, it, yeah, it, it, it opened me up quite a bit. And, uh so, hey, Bill, I, I just wanted to mention, going back to Gino, we, we've had Gino on the show before. Uh, it's been a few years, but he, yeah. he joined us a few years ago. It was right after he had a, I don't know if you remember this, but he had a problem with an in-ear monitor, and it basically blew his ear eardrum out. And uh, Well, he, I got to tell you that. They, they, they played at ridiculous volumes. Yeah. They, they, we were at 128 TV on stage. Oh, my gosh. And, <laughs> and I wore shotgun earplugs because I, I just wasn't going to lose my hearing. Right. Okay? He didn't yeah. like it very much, and he just – I said, I'm going to grow my hair longer, okay? Here, look. Nobody's- <laughs> in fact, again, here's another interesting story. The first time I come back to Chicago – so my mom's feeling bad until we come back to Airy Crown. 5,000 seat, you know, 6,000 sure, seat. All the Italians, all my friends, neighbors, you know, everybody's coming. Of course, my parents. And they come to the sound check, and I know it's going to be ridiculously loud. So I have gotten them each shotgun earplugs, and they came to sound check, and they met everybody, and it was wonderful. Then I then they had to go eat while I had to go back and get cleaned up. And we got to back to stage at Airy Crown and I was putting on show clothes and I reached in my pocket and realized I never gave him the earplugs. <laughs> oh no, you know, they're gonna die because um, the guy who was promoting this show who became one of my very best friends, Bill Johnston, who later managed them also, um, said, Man, I got him in a great seat. They're in the third row, you know. So if you can imagine the curtains open up and it's all, and by the way, Gino's audiences were incredibly eclectic. They were really cool. Yeah. Like, there were jazz lovers, there were pop lovers, people who loved his voice, a lot of African Americans, and at least sixty-five percent uh, screaming girls who wanted to sleep with Gino. <laughs> <laughs> it was the hair, I tell you, it was the hair. It was the hair. <laughs> it was amazing, you know. And, and, uh, yeah, the the, the skin tight pants, the whole thing. So um, we open up, and there's all screaming girls in the first three rows and in the midst of it is my dad in his suit coat you know and my mom with her pearls with cotton sticking out of both of their ears like they look like mr and mrs frankenstein so they had they figured it out they damn they couldn't care less about how they looked yeah. you know they managed to stuff like a you know like a two bales of cotton in each ear and <laughs> uh, and they got through the concert okay you know it's funny but yeah it, and so uh, you know you do that enough years and yeah, it takes it, a toll. It'll take its toll. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm glad to see him. I saw him perform and got to hang with him a little bit uh, last year, and 
sounded better than ever. He's developed even more taste and better styling, you know, at this age in his life. And he keeps himself in very good shape. Too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned a second ago that, you know, you eventually wound your way to L.A. And, you know, it was a great move, you know, because you ended up working with a lot of different people, you know, like, like David Foster and Natalie Cole, Dionne Warwick. We mentioned Madonna and a few others, Sheila E. You know, when you landed in L.A., how, how did that shape you as a musician? And ultimately, how did it shape your career? Oh, that's an interesting question. You got to understand, I was 23. Right. So, You're very so young, yeah. Everything was, was um, flashing by me. Right. Uh, but the, the, the interesting thing about it was, see, what I was doing, I wasn't living in L.A. Remember now, that's 76, right? So I would come out for the tours. I'd drop somebody a couple bucks to stay with them while we rehearsed, and then I'd go back to Chicago. And, and Gino had a bad tendency to do something, and this is if, if Gino could sell out uh, L.A. Uh, at, uh, we have uh, the Greek theater seats about 5,000. Right. He knew he could sell two nights out there. He would book the Forum, which would be like the equivalent of the Chicago Stadium, mm -hmm. and bleed about 7,000 seats and piss all the promoters off. So we were all set to go on tour, and the label pulled it and just said, no, we can't, we can't support this, and you're going to have to go back in the studio, rethink this. You just wow. don't have the, the seats to do it. And um, so I had to hop off Gino, and I ended up uh, – Lou Rawls had a hit at the time, You'll Never Find, huge hit. And one of my friends played bass in his band, and they needed a piano player. So I toured with Lou Rawls and had some hilarious experiences with, with, with that. Really? <laughs> music to do. Yeah, Lou was an interesting character. I, I could get into all kinds of stuff with him. <laughs> uh, you know, you know how you got the Budweiser, this Bud's for you? He used to do that, right? And I think they just paid him. I'll give you just one quick one. He used to pay him in Budweiser. I'm not sure if they paid him any money. <laughs> Are you serious, really? Well, I mean, every night we would yeah. play in Vegas. And, and um, yeah, we played Vegas, Tahoe, and Reno, but, uh, uh, along with uh, touring other places. And when you got a huge hit like You'll Never Find, you know, he could get in just about anywhere. Sure. Yeah, he was very comfortable in that circuit. So I remember we did a show, and I'm not exactly sure, I think it was 78. And the chronology will line up with you on this. Our opening act was um, Tina Turner when she was making her comeback. Okay. Mm. And she killed us every night. I mean, the energy and everything. She was coming back with a passion, right? And, yeah. And Lou would just, you know, have these screens up. And, and it, uh, we, the, the, the main part of our set was a tribute to uh, Nat King Cole, Satchmo, and, and Duke Ellington. Wow. And in between each song, he'd have me noodle, play piano. Well, everybody else was falling asleep while I at least got to play. And <laughs> every time I turn to him, man, he'd have this, he had this big glass that said water. And he, I remember the, he had this uh, assistant by the name of Gary. And every time Gary bring out more water, you'd see head, you know, from the beer coming over <laughs> the glass, you know, <laughs> even though it said water, right? You know, <laughs> drinking stuff up. And so I had to set him up for Mona Lisa. And uh, I, uh, you know, gave him the arpeggio and that guy's drinking beer, right? So I've got to break it down again and do more chords. And he's talking some more, set him up. This happened three times. Finally, he puts the beer down. I'm thinking, this has got to be it. Please, please, God, make it it, right? So I give him the arpeggio and give him his note real loud. And he says, now I want to sing the very lovely Mona Lisa. Uh, take it, Billy. And I give him his note again. And he stands up to the mic. And remember, he and I are in front of the orchestra. And he sings Mona Lisa. <laughs> Giant size burp. <laughs> you know, I was crying. I was laughing. So yeah. I mean, the orchestra was laughing. He Too just, funny. 
just ignored it, man. Just kept singing. He, just, <laughs> he was quite a showman. The show must go on. <laughs> it must go on. <laughs> so inside of this, every time I come back, I had a guy in Chicago who, who wonderful friend, Jerry Wolf, who passed away. Uh-huh. And he had a lot to do with helping me. He liked what I was doing. He heard my demos and he said, well, let's make another one. I want to manage you, even though he wasn't in the music business. And so he put some money out. and I did a five-song demo that I'm proud to say all the songs got eventually taken by people. Interesting. And, and while I was touring with, with Lou, I get a phone call in Vegas, and it's Maurice White from Earth, Wind & Fire. And he used to make fun of me, saying, hey, man, why can't you bring artists to, you know, to me? And I said, well, why can't you get Earth, Wind & Fire if you got any you know, acumen? He went to a, a Ron. I'm sorry. One of, the, one of the brothers was an engineer at Universal Studios. And managed to get my demo tape to him and said, hey, man, I'll take care of you if you can get it to Maurice. And Maurice heard the tape and said, I want to sign your group. I was, it was my, my material. I was singing a little bit. There, were, there was another lead singer in the band, Billy Durham, and a couple of great writers. And we just brought in the local cats to you know, cut strings and horns. There was some production on it. And he called me in Vegas and said, uh, can you come on out? I really want to meet you. And I think maybe we could even do some writing. Well, they were at their peak. Uh, the single on the radio was September, you know. Wow. And they were they were recording I Am. That's what really got me out to L.A. Uh, the first day I was there, I met David Foster. And, and David said, yeah, Maurice is going to have me work on your record with you. And he's going to, you know, he's going to take some cuts, but he's going to oversee it. And, and uh, I mean, you could tell instantly David was a, was a tremendous musician. You know, oh, that's interesting. Hey, Bill and Eddie, if you guys don't mind, let's pause for a second. And let's check out a track from Bill's 1990 album. It was his second solo album, and it's called The Color of the Truth. And this is the title track. Again, from our guest today, Bill Myers on Inside Music Cast. Yeah. 
you know, you've written so many songs, apart from the guys, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and, uh, and you've had great success. But tell us a little bit about your writing. Tell us a little bit, you know, in the case of being in L.A., were, were you writing for yourself or always submitting to other various artists? Tell us what was going on with your writing. How were you writing? Okay. That was in 1979. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first song that I brought to Maurice um, that wasn't on the demo was a song called Can't Let Go, which Maurice uh, kind of fixed six areas up and said, well, let's, let's write a different bridge. This is this. Mm-hmm. So not only was I learning from one of the greats, I'm watching people like, like you know, you know David Alley Willis, uh, Jay Graydon. Um, yeah. Uh, at the same time, I had, I, by the way, I, I've had this problem much of my life uh, where, you know, there's, two, there's a fork in the road. You can pick one way or the other. And uh, I had been contacted by Harvey Mason. Now, remember, I'm loving jazz. And Harvey Mason liked what he heard and said, hey, man, I'd like to, to produce you. Well, I felt bad because right after that, when, you know, I'd met Maurice. And, and he said, I really love this one cut here today and gone tomorrow. And um, he enticed me by Stanley Clark. If you imagine, I'm from Chicago. I haven't played with anybody big. And I'm going to cut the song, get to play the solos. It's my song with a couple other writers. And there's Stanley Clark, Lee Rentnauer, Polino da Costa, um, Bill Chaplin singing, Harvey on drums, and you know all the A musicians for horns and strings on this thing. And a week after I gave it to him, Earth, Wind, and Fire wanted it to open their record. Interesting. That's really interesting. And wow. I mentioned my dad earlier. Um, he's been a huge influence on my life. If I can be as good to my kids as he was to me, I, one of the things he had said was, "Your word is your bond." I don't ever so I want to see so you give your word and break it. And I was really caught here. <laughs> and, and David Foster came and he said, are you crazy? You're going to give this to Harvey Mason. Do you realize how many records we're going to sell? And I said, well, yeah, but I got a song with Reese and now I've got a song with Harvey. So I'm going to have two different zones, you know? So, you know, Harvey's record sold 40,000 and earth, wind and fire sold 5 million. You know? um, and so what I realized was that while I was writing with other people, it was always great to take on their styles and learn what they were doing. But something had worked even from early stage of my first demo to have all my songs finally get placed. Interesting. And after the Earth, Wind and Fire song, thanks to David. Yeah. David, David did me some, some favors early on. I haven't really been much in touch with David for a while, but um, he introduced me to Quincy. He showed my stuff to Quincy and Quincy used two of my songs on, on Shaka Khan and Rufus. Uh, Heavenbound is yeah, what yeah, yeah. stayed. There was another cut that actually I thought was a stronger cut, but um, and then Quincy later used me on Donna Summer's record when he asked me to do a kind of a classical combination of a something similar to um, Could It Be Magic? And, wow. and we I used a here we go Bach a two part invention in C minor and put a melody on top of it rather than look for a classical melody and revoice it. Yeah, and work with Richard Page on that from uh, Mister Mister. Um, so. Uh, yeah, it, it's a give and take thing when you're discussing like how, how, how people have influenced you. Gino definitely influenced me at first, but I also realized he was pretty right of center. And, and, and then Reese, I call him Reese Maurice, um, had a great pop sound, but he was so developed in what he was doing. What he would always tell me was um, he'd see me try to do material on records and stuff. And he'd go, you're, 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 you're taking things too far afield. If you're going to be an artist or if you're going to be somebody where you want your material to be heard by everybody, you have to mine one basic area. And then when that hits, then you can work out from there. 
but it's a mistake a lot of artists sometimes make when they're when they're trying to get signed. They they want to show that they can do, you know, more than one genre. You know, you know, you're talking about Earth, Wind, and Fire, and uh, you know, me and Rick were talking about it a little earlier, and and when we found out that you had done the horn arrangement for Let's Groove. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, gee whiz, that's an amazing tune, especially the horn parts, you know, about two thirds through, you know, when they, you know, they kick it in, it, it just changes the whole, you know, makeup of the whole song. Tell us about, uh, you know, the, this track. It's really cool. First of all, Maurice didn't play, he played drums, didn't play an instrument, didn't play piano, but he had mm-hmm. such exquisite taste. You could sit down at a piano and voice a pretty complex chord. And he's going, ah, no, that's not quite it, man. Can you bring it half <laughs> down, half to one note? No, not that note. No, no, there it is. Yeah. You know, um, I remember one time, again, being classically trained, I said to him, um, you know, that's not going to work. That melody's not going to work. And he looked at me and he started laughing, you know. And he said, I think it will. You're going to find it'll feel good against it. <laughs> Particularly if it's in passing, you know. And, and he recognized I wasn't trying to be arrogant. I was just like, yeah. my training had set me up to do something that would be standard, okay? He'd sing horn parts. He'd sing little horn riffs. And one of the things he did is he recognized that I'd have that ability. And and he said, man, you're, you're a horn arranger. You can do, you, I know you can do strings, but I, you're a horn arranger. Hmm. And, and so he kind of brought me along, encouraged me, you know, from that. So, uh when we did Let's Groove, it was one of the last songs cut. It was one of the later songs cut. And and by the way, I've learned a lot from listening to Jerry Hayes' horn arrangements, just like yeah. I learned a lot from, from, from David's production. Jerry's just a brilliant arranger. But again, you know, in this town, everything's competitive. So, you know, it's if you're in there and you're competing against somebody else, they don't want you to get the job. And, and uh, uh, at this point, you know, Jerry had done such a magnificent job on IM and, and – uh, uh, he did some stuff on Faces. This was Ray's album. And uh, Maurice uh, said, I got a couple of them for you. Uh, I think he gave me four horn charts and about five or six string charts. And in those days, by the way, they had the budgets to cut way more than the amount of songs, you know, that they actually put on the record. They cut 15 songs to get 10. You know what I mean? Right. So um, let's groove. He said, you know what, man? Uh, it's just got a nice little pocket. He said, but after you do the intro... You're going to do some sparse lines in, in the chorus, but I really want you to come in at the, at, the, at the bridge. And he said, I'm going to give you an assignment here. This is going to be a tricky one. That's why I think this is one of my better arrangements is because he said, uh, if you listen to it, you'll see what I'm talking about. He said, you're going to have it. You're going to have it for like eight, 16 bars, depending on what you come up with, you know? So I thought, okay, that's going to allow me to get two different patterns. I wanted to get an A pattern and a B pattern, okay? Okay. And he said, but when the vocals come back, I want that to keep going and you can't step on the vocals. <laughs> I want to hear you let this groove set in your shoes, you know, all right, all right, all right. That's still got to come through. Now that's a, that's a tricky assignment, you know? Um, but I think I found the way, you know, and uh, I'm pretty proud of the arrangement because you'll hear as my solo, you know, section there where the, the horns get a shout chorus. Yep. There's pattern A, there's pattern B. But both pattern A and pattern B work when the vocals come back, and I don't have to change a note of it. Pretty you know? cool. I'm giving you a couple of the music lessons that I got. <laughs> oh, got yeah, sure. That's yeah, cool stuff. From him. From him. You, you're so multifaceted, and I know that's on your website, but I, I actually wrote that down because, you know, in studying you and, and learning about you, there's you do so many things, and you – over the you know the years in your career, you performed you know as a musician. You've arranged horns. You've orchestrated strings. You're a songwriter. Yeah, you've you've kind of done it all. And I just 
you know, being a musician, you know, obviously came first, but from there, describe the sequence of acquiring, you know, all the hats that you wear. They came over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get these things overnight. I mean, I went back to right. UCLA and learned how to conduct and orchestrate. You know, I'd, I'd studied at DePaul, but honestly, you know, you know, it, it's funny thing with music schools, unless you're taking something, you know, practical, uh, meaning that you're really into it, mm-hmm. it's, a lot of it's a waste of time. There's a lot of electives. And you almost get more from the people that are in the school with you. Okay. So out in LA, that's one of the first things I did was I, I went and learned how to conduct and I learned how to orchestrate better. And I'd written with other people, but I, of course I'd, I'd wanted, I should also tell you that when, when I was, uh, we negotiated a record contract at the time when Maurice brought me out, cause that would have been my start as an artist. Okay. There was a problem. Uh, our lawyer was, uh, uh, Richard Lair from Mitchell Silverberg and up, and theirs was, um, I'm forgetting his name, but he just became the corporate lawyer for their company, ARC. And these guys were rivals at the same same company. Okay. And, and they fought hard and negotiated for a month. And I think that along with uh, managers, uh, Cavallo and Ruffalo weren't happy about the fact that I had my own manager who'd gotten me that far. And one day they just went, you know what, man? Forget it. We're done. If you're not going to take our deal, we're done. And so all really we got out of it was a $10,000 legal fee, you know, and uh, didn't get signed. And so I was writing with a lot of other people, but I'd always had the desire to be an artist. I uh, wasn't sure how I was going to do it. Mm-hmm. Would it be instrumental? I sang a little bit. I was had a good enough voice to do background vocals on other people's things, but um, I didn't know if I want to fall in that trap. So thinking about being an artist kind of started in the mid eighties where, um, as a session musician, I was getting enough work. An interesting thing happened uh, 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 at the time. It was called Ocean Way Records. Now it's East West. Mm-hmm. The engineer there, the head engineer and owner, Alan Sides, Alan Sides yeah. became a good friend. He recommended me on some projects and uh, um, always enjoyed hanging out with him. Very good engineer, too. And he and Bernie Grunman, who's like the number one sure. you know, mastering guy, were forming a, a direct-to-disc uh, label, audiophile label. And they were making a demo tape. He called it his, his, his shock tape. And he wanted one to, to be just the rhythm section and the other to just go crazy. And he said, I think you're the one to do it. And I said, wow. And at the time, that was when I was touring and starting with Madonna. Okay. So um, he said, you got, you got a side, but here's, here's the only thing. You, you, you got to do it direct to disc. So whatever you do, you got to perform and make it work for 24 minutes. Holy he, gave me, he gave me a, you know, a large rhythm section. So it ended up being an album called Images because the first right. side was done for them as a demo. And then, and then uh, a small label picked it up and I did the other side. But um, I thought, I'm going to go back to my roots because I am writing pop songs and getting things done. But yeah. my, my, you'll hear my classical organ roots from, from uh, that record. You'll hear jazz roots. You'll hear all kinds of different things. And I took it as far out as I could. And um, so that was telling me that I guess I wanted to go in, in fusion. You know, okay. as, a, as a name, as an artist, because mm-hmm. there's so many great singers out in Los Angeles. Yeah, right. I, I, why subject myself to that? Um, so that was that became my focus for a minute. And um, I'm real pleased with the way that had come out. Uh-huh. We did get a Grammy nomination, even though it was a small minor label. And uh, the musicianship quality on that record is superb. I mean, yeah. You go 24 minutes without making a mistake. I didn't hear anybody make a mistake on side one. It was it was a, a pretty um, pretty cool. So and then if you can imagine this, just for levity, I'm playing on Madonna's Virgin tour, 
everybody wondered how we could call it the Virgin Tour, but um, <laughs> and, and and she was great. By the way, you know, I I really enjoyed her and and meeting her. We had some pretty cool personal asides. Uh, I was invited to her wedding, and and she was she was good to me. But but she was always pretty combative. And and um, I, if you can imagine, I was working on this this, this other record of my own while while doing the, the like a Virgin rehearsals, right. uh, Virgin tour, and 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 uh, I was putting good three three hours in, you know playing because I, I had I was playing fast breakneck tempos and soloing with you know left hand going at the same time and then and like a virgin I'm coming in and I'm playing bink 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 <laughs> <laughs> I can teach uh, my mom this part you know <laughs> only two chords to it you know yeah. um one day I tried to play the bass line and 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 Bill Lamphere who's a real great bass player but also could play key bass and she wanted to hear that sound went furious on me you know so like, you want me to get me fired what the hell's wrong with you you know <laughs> So it just, I would always find it so amazing that here I am with the biggest artist in the world at the time yeah. with incredibly simple and yet wonderful production value. Okay. I, I'm not knocking what she's doing. I'm just saying I, I'm working at the hardest thing I'm doing in my life and playing the easiest, you know, at the same time. Yeah. And so you asked me, well, why am I all over the place? I think it's just because I've had so many varied interests, sure. influences, you know, in my life. Yeah. I think that's what led me to, you know, kind of expand it whenever I can. I, I don't ever want to get completely pigeonholed in one arena. Yeah. When I mentioned, you know, you wear all these hats and how did you develop those, et cetera, but you were doing this all, even though you said it took a while, you're doing it all at a fairly young age. And, um, you know, so it's, to me, it seemed like just looking at your credits and knowing, you know, how, how long you'd been in the business, it's like you, it seems like you were sort of the, uh, the victim of circumstance in a way. You sort of adapted to, you know, whatever was presenting itself at the time. That's such an astute observation. It really is. Um, I, I, people ask me, like, what advice do you have? I said, you know, one of the things that happened, we're all sensitive people. Nobody likes to present something and, um, and get stepped on. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. when you're getting all kinds of accolades, because I, for example, Madonna came back to me after she'd heard some stuff I was doing and yeah. let me do the you know, Papa Don't Preach, which is the number one single. Right. String introduction, right? Yep. yep. Then everybody starts calling you. So mm -hmm. if everybody's calling you, you don't push yourself. Yeah. You know, they're going to like you because they already do. Hey, by the yeah. way, who was producing at that time? Guy Ritchie? No, no. He wasn't in the picture at that time. Who, who, who was producing Madonna um, back then? Some writers were, were producing different. Gotcha. African American kid who, who was a great writer and a nice guy, and I can't think of his name right now. Yeah, um, Pat Leonard got to do a couple things. Awesome. And and Pat and I go way back. We're from Chicago. Yeah, sure. Chicago. And Pat's a, a really really excellent musician. Um, yeah. And and had a nice run, you know, as a as both a writer player. Yeah. Hey, Bill and Eddie, uh, if you guys don't mind, uh, I've got an itch to play another track. And this track comes from Bill's 1996 solo album. It was his third solo album called All Things in Time. And our Inside Music Cast correspondent, uh, Mikhail Ingstrom, uh, recommended this track. It's called Sky. From our guest today, Bill Myers on Inside Music Cast.
Hey, I want to ask you. I want to get a little technical, just for our keyboardists and our musicians that are out there listening. So, so in the mid '80s, you know, this this sound, the digital era is coming up. So, tell us about your typical setup. I mean, how did you like the setup? Were you playing DXs, emulators? What kind of sound generators were you using? Controllers? What was uh, what was uh, I mean, the '80s? That's when all this was really coming out, and uh, you're right in the middle of it. Tell, talk to us a little bit about that, would you? Well, late 70s, I'd laugh at everybody setting up. You know, <laughs> players, you know, because I went, well, guys, I got to set up. Excuse me, give me a sec. You know, and I'd open up the, the grand piano, you know, uh, 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 if, 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 if there was a cap on the keys, you know, of course, right, right, right. done, I'm ready to play, or, or Rhodes. And then it suddenly, it changed. It, it, it uh, you know, once they could MIDI everything, that's right. what really created the explosion. Sure. Because playing individual synthesizers, you know, you could lug one of those around. But then yep. suddenly we all had to get these huge refrigerator racks. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And now we got cartage. And now we have all kinds of, uh, you know, sequencing issues and delays. And right. It was a weird time. Remember now, you, you get a bit of arrogance when you're, when, when, when you're, working with the top session musicians. Of course, they, sure. They were making top dollar, right? And then you'd see these programmers come in, you know, and, and, and they'd yeah. take 15 minutes to get a sound, you know. And, um, you know, and then you'd think, wow, you know, these are the, these are the nerds, right? But the nerds <laughs> take over the world, you know. They do. <laughs> I mean, we're living in, a, in, in an age now where obviously everybody can do it at their home, but sure. it's less, I would still say the balance of recorded music is, is sequenced and not performed. You yeah, know? you're right. Not saying it's good or bad. Yep, exactly. It's it saved me being a keyboard player because we have access to a, a, an incredible library of sounds and and uh, you know can do things. But at the time, I know working with Gino, we worked with two voice Korgs. Um, that that and 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 for string sounds, it was a Farfisa, which they yeah. Joey was, was an electronic genius, man. I mean. It sounded great, you know, and he would tweak them just a bit. And when we'd play a song like, um, oh, he had one called Powerful People and we'd play a horn part, three people would have to play the part and we'd each take two voices. So it was played like a horn section because, you know, you only had two voices to play, you know, for your part. And if you're going ba, 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 and it's a six voice chord, there's three people playing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that changed more. Yeah. Um, Obviously, Roland had some nice things, MKSs, um, uh, the Jupiter. Yeah, they had some really warm analog sounds. I tell you, the Roland, the Jupiters, those those really had the really warm ethereal sounds. It's just nice background patches. By the time I was playing with Madonna, DXs were our our, our uh, yep. you know uh, controller keyboard. Sure, emulator was great. Um, in those days, uh, you know, we were doing samples, and even then, we were we were. We're hitting em emulator samples of background vocals. Uh, I don't think anybody had a lead because you'd have to. That would have been too tricky. But but background parts. Sure. Um, and and, and that, that was when it was a bit more of a challenge because if you're playing at a tempo and you're doing a song like "Gonna Gonna Catch You Up," what is it? Something with my love. You know, uh, I, I'm forgetting what it is. But uh, 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 anyhow, uh, you're gonna have to one, two, three, hit. Gonna da 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 da. It's not on a downbeat. You you otherwise the the, the part is all screwed up. So yeah. you were being counted on to perform something on a, on a 16th before a, a downbeat, you know, um, going to dress you up in my love was the name of the song. Yeah. And, and so, uh, the more we sequenced though, the more we took that away. So I think as time went on, I, I got, a, I had an 88 wood weighted Yamaha 
And I got myself all kinds of stuff. I went yeah. from the emulator to um, the Akai. The Akai sampler was a really great sampler. Yeah. Um, you know, the quality of the sounds were getting better. And oh, yeah. I was sequencing, I sequenced images in 1985 on a Lin 9000. Did you really? Uh, yeah, we had about 30, 30 synthesizers. And then on the second side, <laughs> Roland came in and covered it. And they brought some of their latest stuff. Wow. Yeah. And so we incorporated that with the sequencers that I had. The synth guys that were uh, um, getting sounds, sounds, yeah. you know, the programmers, sound programmers. You, you mentioned it. I think you briefly touched on direct to disc a minute ago. I think didn't you say your images album was was recorded that way? Yeah, uh, the first side. After yeah. we got through it, and I went, my God, what did I just do? <laughs> well, I, you know, we had three takes, and that that was the last take, man. You know, they didn't have much more time. Was that the first time you you had actually heard about direct to disc, or had actually you know gone through that process? It is the first time. It's the first time I did it. At the very same time, by the way, we had 3M digital machines there, okay? That was the latest toy, which we later found out they give off radiation. Uh-huh. <laughs> I wonder why my hair was green. You know? <laughs> um, and um, fortunately, they recorded it on that also, which allowed us then quality sound-wise to do the second side direct to two-track. So side one was direct to disc, side two was direct to two-track. And... Um, I, I started working on more of those because when images came out, people said, ah, I guess we can trust him, you know. So then I worked on a bunch of two-track, live-to-two-track projects, you know. And, and I did Sheffield Lab projects, too. Okay. Well, you also touched on the Images album a second ago. That was your first solo album that came out, like, I think at the end of 85 or around 86. And um, you said that that album has actually received a Grammy nomination. And uh, I've, I've listened to it many times. It's, it's an amazingly arranged and orchestrated album. It, it almost sounds cinematic in some regards. Yeah, well, notice images, right? Yeah. It's visually inspired music. In fact, we're going to, let me jump in real quick here. And uh, I, I just re released it through a friend of mine who owns Warrior Records, and he's going to re release all my stuff. Okay. But one of the things we'd planned on doing and couldn't. Um, was uh, make films to some of the stuff. We're going to do that sometime okay. this year. Well, you, you also mentioned that, you know, in, in the fact that you cut that direct to disc, you had some incredible personnel on that album. And uh, I know Vinny Caliuta was your drummer. Tell us about some of the other guys that were, were on this record. Oh, sure. Um, first of all, we had all the top young programmers, you know, helping and in the endorsement of, of Roland, along with Alan Sides and, and Ocean Way and Bernie. Uh-huh. But uh, uh, Larry Carlton played guitar. He was a featured soloist. Um, Larry Carlton, yeah. Yeah, just did an Who's amazing. that? Who's yeah. that? Who's that? <laughs> Who's that guy? I've never heard of his name. Carlton with a K. Yeah. <laughs> Carlton with a K. That's wonderful. Uh, Ernie Watts. Ernie was just astoundingly good. Yeah. He's a monster. Ernie Watts. He, he, and he played flute as good as he played sax. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he did an amazing thing. He came out and he and, and just said, "Man, I really would like to, you know, we're doing a direct to disc, and I I'd, I'd really like to see what 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 you want for me." Mm-hmm. And I went over it. I played some things, and he just shook his head and he said, "Man, this is going to be a lot of fun." And you knew when he hit on the downbeat that whatever he was going to play was incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, here's a here's a tie back with Ernie to Gino. You're going to laugh at this. I okay. Think. When, when I went with Lou and then I came back, this is, uh, Gino was, was now working with, well, I was working with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Gino did his Brother to Brother record, which was you know, brilliant. There's some great right. stuff on that. Yeah. And they invited me in the studio when I was coming off a tour with Lou to come and see him. And they were working on um, I Just Want to Stop, which, by the way, again, I mentioned Ross Vanelli. Ross wrote it. That's right. Yeah, that's true. It, it caused Gino some pain because up to that point, he'd written everything himself. And this, <laughs> this was the hit, okay? Yeah. 
and they brought in Ernie to play the sax on it. And uh, so I was sitting there watching it. And like I said, these guys will take the easiest thing and go over it a thousand times. So they got him in the studio and they had me ready there. I'd written, now that I think of it, maybe that's why they had me there. <laughs> more than one key, right? You know, um, but I'd, I'd written a chord shot and assuming he was going to play sax. Uh, I mean, uh, a tenor sax. But he goes out there, he listens to the track. And he says, I don't need that. I don't need that. I, you know, I can figure it out depending on what horn I'm playing. And he gets on the mic and they, they roll it. And he said, you want to practice it a couple times? He goes, no, no, man, I, I got it, man. Just, just, just put it on record. Let's go. Let's make some magic. Played the most amazing, soulful, simple, just in tune with the rhythm. Just, just like, there's nothing wrong with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing, okay? And he stops, finishes, and, you know, everybody looks at Chino, you know, because I'm wondering, is he going to let it go, right? You know, yeah, exactly. You know, that, that, he says, okay, uh, we got that. Give me another one, right? So he does another solo, and it's completely different. And believe <laughs> me, that's, that's a gift. You know, I've, I've seen people come in, and they play four notes different on the second time they take a pass on a solo. You right, know? right, exactly. Completely different, no less brilliant. Okay? Oh, my goodness. Gino and Joe are talking, but Gino, but Joe, I don't know, Joe, I'm not sure. He goes, well, I, I'm thinking it's maybe something like this. So he hits the mic and he says, gets the talk back. And I can see Ernie goes, Ernie's getting annoyed. Ernie <laughs> doesn't suffer fools gladly, you know. And Ernie says, uh, uh, well, what, what, what do you think, guys? You know, and Gino goes, well, he goes, it's just that I'm looking for something that's really soulful, you know, that, that, that might be like, there's a cut from Marvin Gaye and he tells us which, which of the hit singles it was. He goes, yeah. and, and it's, it's sexy and it's got a, just a kind of a sultry kind of vibe to it, you know, with a little bit of uh, grizzle. Can you think you could play like that guy? And without missing a beat, without missing a beat, Ernie went, yeah, sure. I did that solo. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> He was the soloist that Gino was referring because you could just tell Gino was just looking for anything to kind of yeah. prolong this event. You right, know? right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I did that solo. Okay. Oh my yeah. God, that's amazing. You know, it, it, that's it's that's a, that's a great story. I mean, those those guys, Vanellis. I mean, he's what 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 gems of of, of talent, and uh, and they can they just continued amazing know. people too. Yeah, they are. You know, they're family, really, even to this day. I mean, yeah. I, they gave me my start. Really? Yeah, exactly. So I, I'm doing this jokingly, but it's just kind of funny. Because sure. It's hey, Bill, Eddie and I both really love the Images album. And uh, now that we've talked about it a bit, let's stop and play a track from it. And uh, again, this goes back to 1986, and it's called Voyager, Prelude, and Liftoff. From our guest today, Bill Myers on Inside Music Cast.
Hey, Bill, um, before we end here, I've got a few questions that pertain to some other solo projects, but these all come from our correspondent in Stockholm, uh, Mikael Engström. And um, his first question is, in, in continuing with uh, your solo projects, he said, you returned as a solo artist in 1990 with The Color of Truth, released on Agenda Records. And he said it's a great album, but compared to Images, what was your take and approach when you went into the studio to record this particular project? Um, I'd written some songs for some other people and some Japanese clients who, who remastered uh, uh, images in uh -huh. Japan liked what I was doing. And I had written it for other people and I sang on it and they said, we want you to sing. And I was like, okay, I'm crazy enough to try this. So it, it had some sting elements to it and uh, I did a vocal record. And it, it was uh, uh, released by um, Dick Bosey from A&M Records who, who had a new label that was uh, distributed by BMG. Uh -huh. That was a wonderful, that was a tough experience because when you're, you know, all musicians tend to cut back on a mic a little bit yeah. as opposed to singers that are more actors, you know. And uh, what it did for me is it taught me valuable lessons to produce other singers. Okay. You know, if, if you're singing a little bit flat, sometimes you need to hear more of the track. You need to hear more of yourself singing flat against the track. So maybe take a headphone off, cup your ear, things like that. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So that's been great for all my work since. You know, uh, there's always purpose in all this stuff. Sure. And I did one more after that that I'm really proud of. In fact, it's coming out next month again, and it's called All Things in Time. I did it for a Japanese label, and I've got a bunch of stars on that. And some are grooves. It's very groove-oriented, and there's some vocals. I sang on a couple things, but uh, I've also had Diane Reeves, uh, Elda Barge, and uh, um, Sue Ann Carwell singing along with, uh, you know, girl from Atlantic Star, Barbara Weathers. Oh, and Earth, Wind, and Fire did, a, did an entire cover. Very cool. Nice. Going back to the uh, uh, color of truth, you, Mick also mentioned that um, you had Jeff Percaro on this album, and he said, "Tell us, tell us a little more about um, working with Jeff." Well, Jeff is um, the best player, you know, overall ever uh, that, that, <laughs> that I think I've ever worked with. Yeah, yeah as yeah. far as and and I'll tell you, in the midst of all this, uh, uh, I know Mikel's excited about some demos that I, I had with you know a bunch of my friends that never got signed, mm -hmm. but um, at one point, Vinny had to go on tour and, and, and Jeff uh, just said, Hey man, I'll help you guys out. And he played on these songs, you know, um, I met Jeff by touring with boss Skaggs and, 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 and most of Toto in, in 1980 when he did uh, the record down to and to the left. Okay. That's how we first met. Okay. Okay. And I remember this cause it, it changed my style of, of arranging. Um, he asked me, you know, I gave him these written out charts for drums and then he said, where's the lyrics? I said, well, it's in the vocal booth, you know, with the lead singer. And because uh, I need a copy. So I thought, well, that's kind of strange. Okay. And um, I, I got it to him. I brought it to him. I go, uh, I'm curious. Well, what do you, uh, you know, check out? He goes, well, man, I, it's all about the lyric, man. He said, uh, I play off of the lyric. Yeah. And he taped that. He had a photographic memory. So he didn't, he really didn't even need my chart after looking at it one time, but he taped the lyrics to the symbol. Interesting. And it made me rethink how I should arrange. Yeah. Wow. I want the lyrics before I do anything. Um, one of the arrangements that I'm most proud of is off of uh, Brian McKnightie, who's become a you know, very uh, great collaborator and confidant. I've co-produced with him, and I've worked on a number of things. But he wrote a song for, for someone who had passed away, and it was called When the Chariots Come. And having those lyrics allowed me to really play musically, you know, musical ideas and weight based on the tone and, 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 and the tenor of the lyric. Interesting. So for arrangers out there, I'm telling you, it's, it's invaluable. If you really do service to a song, you want to get into the heart of what it's saying, 
and and appropriately back it up, you know. So basically what you're saying is the music is fine, but the content in matching up and going parallel to the content is equally as important. It's how it marries. Yeah. It's, it's not, you know, you can always hear somebody that's new because they overwrite and you hear people with ego mm-hmm. because they make their stuff more important than what yeah. make the combination of the vocal or anything else that's important in the, in the you know. Yeah. Hey, well, we need to wrap up, but um, I just wanted to ask you, uh, like, what what projects are you currently busy now that you can talk about, and what does, uh, like, 2017 have in store for you? Yeah. It, it looks like it's going to be a really good year. Uh, I'm real happy to say that I, I got contacted through uh, a friend. Um, I've been doing video game music along with, uh, I just finished a documentary called First Contact. It's about when aliens will come visit the Earth. And I got to do a really interesting score with it. They, they, they wanted me to uh, have a lot of parallel motion, kind of similar to like what Bernard Herrmann used to do. Interesting. You know, and not give positive or negative, major or minor endings to it, leaving it. Right. You know, until the very end where I could do the, the Close Encounters type music, you know. Right. So I did it all in, 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 my, uh, in my room. But um, I am I'm scheduled, I just uh, submitted budgets for uh, a project that's coming out of D.C. about the Underground Railroad. And, oh, uh, nice. And I had to submit three different budgets, but uh, they said it's going well and that it looks like we're going to do this in the spring. Uh-huh. It's a 20-minute film. Um, in 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 uh, conjunction with the forestry and tree service, the places that the slaves used to hide. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I'm a history nut, so I, I think that helped me get the gig because I I could speak a little bit on that period, and mm-hmm. and uh, I knew, you know, how much the abolitionists had put in, you know, to the to the movement, um, and so uh, we're waiting on that one. Um, Brian uh, is is uh, uh, discussing possibly going on the road with, for a symphonic tour, which I would do the orchestrations and I would come out to, I don't know if I could conduct all the dates. I know there'd be 12 and 15 cities he's talking about. So that's, that's on. And then finally, I'm going to, um, I'm going to do a solo piano record. I haven't done one. Um, I've been playing um, little treatments of, of hymns uh, at my church, uh, but done rhythmically done different ways. And so I want to do a Christmas record wow. of hymns. Um, and, and pieces. I mean, I, w- I would do something maybe like uh, Carol of the Bells, and I'd have uh, um, oh, Brandon, who is my first call on sax, just an amazing player, play yeah. that with me, and maybe Brian will sing one song with me. The rest will be acoustic piano. And we're going to music pledge it first, and then I'll see if I can package it with my other material and get on a label again, you know, get on a, um, uh, a, a verb or something like that. Sure. You know, we'll, 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 we'll see what after, after we, we release it. So that's just a few of the projects. Yeah. So when are the aliens coming to Earth? Uh, according to this guy, because um, no, there were scientists. Uh, James Woods narrated it and everything. Um, oh wow! It was it, no, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. But yeah. there's one person that that channels someone from another mother galaxy, and I, you know, like everybody else, you roll your eyes, right? Except the guy's articulate. He's really smart. He just goes, "Think about this. We're we're sending radio waves out." Yeah. And wondering why no one's getting back to us. And the truth is that that just, it's kind of like if we're riding in a helicopter across the Amazon and somebody's beating drums and looking up at us, we know that they're pretty far behind us technologically, you know? Yeah. And wouldn't it make more sense to, to basically send uh, empathic signals to someone who could then speak in the language of the people of that planet, you know? And um, so he's saying that we were going through all kinds of turmoil and (laughs) That's no, uh, that's no surprise, yeah. right? I'll, I'll feel that right now. Right. But that—that's the first step towards solving a bunch of things. Hmm. And so they're saying between 
this is according to this, this MPEF, that uh, between 2028 and, and 33, somewhere in that period, will be actually visited. That, that if we continue to, you know, we're supposedly less than 10 years away from uh, getting into fusion energy, we won't, we won't pollute, you know. Holy cow. Um, we won't pollute anymore. If, 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 if that happens, you know, if we, if, we, if we can beat that and save the, you know, save the planet. Yeah. yeah. They say that we could be visited, you know, sometime in the next 15 years. Here's hoping. I know. <laughs> but for the time being, we're just a, a hotspot for aliens. <laughs> they pass by. <laughs> well, let's hope they're not here to conquer. He says it's not. He said, actually, the, this is a race that we're related to. Yeah. I think, the, I think the radio waves that were sent out in like the 60s and 70s and even part of the 80s, uh, I think were pretty appealing. But today's music, I, that's probably why they turned away. <laughs> that's probably why they're not contacting us. It was, no, change the channel, would you? Change the channel. So they're not even, you know, uh, they might be a little purer than some of the music. You know? yeah. And that's how we have Inside Music Cast Radio. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, you're looking for all kinds of music, and I appreciate that, gentlemen. <laughs> Well, hey, Bill, thanks so much for spending all this time with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, man. Great, great. Great talking with both of you. And come out to L.A. and visit us sometime. We will. Definitely we will. Sure will. Look you up. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Bill Myers for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Scott Gross, Mikhail Ingstrom, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightup, Yinka Oyelese, and Arnaud Legere for their support and content development. For the best in West Coast AOR, pop, jazz, and funk, tune in to Inside Music Cast Radio. Download the streaming app for Android and iOS devices, or listen at InsideMusicCast.com. Inside Music Cast is powered by Earshot Audio Post and Cabello Associates. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast and Inside Music Cast Radio.